The question that really comes to my mind is simply, why do we really think that the Buddha can help us understand our ecological crisis, given that he lived in a very different time and place, long ago, far away in Iron Age India, and he didn't really know anything about the kind of global warming that we're experiencing. He didn't know anything about uh, melting glaciers, melting Arctic Sea, melting tundra. For that matter, he didn't know anything about uh, carbon dioxide and its role in heating up the atmosphere or uh, methane gas doing the same sort of thing. So why do we look to the Buddha for help in this particular situation? Well, there's a number of answers that can be given, but I'm going to focus just on one of them because there's one thing that really sort of leaps out for me from the tradition. And it's the quite extraordinary parallel that I see, precise and I think profound parallels between what the Buddha taught about our personal predicament, our usual individual problem, dukkha and how to solve it. It's the parallel between that and our collective civilizational situation right now with regard to the biosphere. That was a very complicated sentence, wasn't it? Uh, what, I, what I'm pointing at is this. I think that what the Buddha had to say about our problem and what we need to do about it, it's really very much the same problem that we face collectively in relationship to the biosphere. And so I'd like to spend the few minutes that I have just exploring that a little bit. In particular, I'm going to give you a, one particular way of articulating what I think the Buddha was focusing on. And I want to emphasize the connection between dukkha, I think that's a term most of you are familiar with, dukkha, suffering in the broad sense, and our sense of separate self. For me, this is actually the most important teaching of the Buddha, that he sees that the normal sense of separate self, the feeling that I'm inside and the rest of you are outside, that we're separate from each other, that this is like the primary, one of the primary sources of our dukkha suffering. It's not just that it's a delusion, but that it's a delusion that causes us to suffer. In more contemporary language, we can say that the sense of the self is a psychological construct. And from this perspective, we can see that the Buddhist path is about deconstructing and reconstructing the sense of self. Moreover, this sense of self, because it's a construct, because it's not actually real, because it's inherently ungrounded, what it means is that this sense of self that we normally have feeling separate from others, is inherently uncomfortable, inherently insecure. Or, as I sometimes like to say, this sense of lack, sorry, this sense of self is haunted or shadowed by a sense of lack. That's how we normally become aware of it. It's the feeling that I think we all have. You know, we know that we have it ourselves. We're not aware that everyone else feels the same thing this feeling that we all have that something is wrong with me. Something is missing. Something isn't quite right. It's one of the great secrets of life, I think, that we all feel this, but we think it's our own problem. We're not aware that everyone else feels much the same thing. Where it gets tricky is that we misunderstand the problem 
we don't realize where it comes from, this inherently insecure self, right? And so we think we're, we're conditioned by our society. And so what is it that we lack? Well, we learn pretty quickly from our society. We don't have enough money, or we don't have enough consumer toys, or we're not famous enough, or we don't have a partner, or our partner isn't good enough, whatever. We end up always looking out here, trying to hold on to something that we hope will fill up this sense of emptiness, this sense of lack at our core. And of course, one of the essential Buddhist teachings is that you know, there's really nothing there that we can hold on to. Everything is insubstantial. And since the fundamental problem is really inside us, it means that anything we might be able to obtain out here, it's not going to satisfy us, right? It's a symptom. It means that no matter... If, if you understand your fundamental problem is that you don't have enough money, you're never going to have enough money, right? Because that's a really misunderstanding of what the root issue is. And so we can appreciate the Buddhist path from this perspective. And here I'm speaking out of my Zen experience. The Buddhist path is about learning to overcome this sense of separation. In Zen, we talk about letting go of the sense of self or forgetting the sense of self. So the Japanese Zen master Dogen talked about to study Buddhism is to study yourself. To study yourself is to forget yourself. And to forget yourself is to realize your intimacy, your oneness with all things. He also described his own experience after his awakening when he said he came to realize that his mind, you know, it it wasn't something in here, that his mind was nothing other than rivers and mountains and the great wide earth, the sun and the moon and the stars. In other words, realizing that, you know, I'm not in here, I'm one of the ways in which all of this, all of you, it's, it's one of the ways that all of us come together. And that's true for, for all of us, right? One of the ways, all the causes and conditions. So overcoming the sense of separation, overcoming the feeling that there's a me inside. And I think we can see how this empowers what is sometimes called the bodhisattva path. Nisargadatta summarized this very well when he said, when I look inside and see that I am nothing, that's wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. Between these two, my life turns. Wisdom and compassion, the two pillars of the Dharma. So as we begin to wake up and we'll realize that we're not separate from each other, we're not separate from the world, then we also begin to act in a way that response to that. We begin to realize that I can't separate my own well-being from yours. And we learn to live in a way that acknowledges and embraces that and works for the well-being of everyone. I hope that makes some sense. It's a very potted version of this particular way of understanding the Buddha Dharma on the individual level. What I want to emphasize now is that everything I've just said on the individual level, I think it also applies collectively. This is exactly the same situation we're in now in relationship to the earth. Except it's not the issue of an individual construction, but rather we have together as a species, we have the sense of separation, sense of alienation from the rest of the earth. And we don't have time to go into the historical details, but 
collectively we feel this. We feel separate. We feel that the earth is something we can exploit and use and abuse in whatever way to satisfy our own needs and wants. But we don't feel a sense of responsibility or obligation because it's just there. It's not us. It's like a, a convenience store for us to draw from. But the other side of that is, again, a collective sense of alienation that I think we as a civilization have. We're not sure what it means to be human. We're not sure what it means for us as a society, what we should value, where we should be going. And I think the comparable problem that occurs, just as individually we look out here and we try to grab something that we can hold on to, some security. So I think the collective version of it has become our kind of industrial growth society, this preoccupation with never-ending, increasing technological development, increasing industrial economic growth, which in themselves could be very, very valuable as means. In other words, there's something important there that we could, this gives us the ability to do things. But what's really happened, I think, because we don't know what else to value, because we don't know where else to go, in a way, we're stuck on the means. We have made the means into the end. So technological development in itself, economic development in itself, that becomes the whole meaning and the goal of our collective life. And yet we can also sense that there's something really inadequate about that. And so the parallel, I think, holds. We're still preoccupied with trying to secure and trying to control ourselves. And what we really need to do from this perspective is to begin to wake up, to begin to overcome this sense of separation that we feel between ourselves and the rest of the world and realize then the process, you know, just as I, as an individual, if I start to wake up and I realize that my well-being isn't separate from your well-being, and if I'm concerned to follow a kind of bodhisattva path, so that I want to live in a way that asks, you know, not what's in it for me, but what can I do to make this situation better? So the same thing is true. It's, I think it's become clear that at this point, we as a species need to wake up. The ecological crisis is also a spiritual crisis. The earth is really calling upon all of us to wake up and, or get out of the way. And what that wake-up involves is realizing that we cannot separate our own well-being from the well-being of the whole. In this case, to wake up, to experience our non-duality with the earth, not only our source, not only our, uh, not just our home, but our mother, a mother from whom we never really cut the umbilical cord. As we begin to wake up to this, then we realize that Again, we can't separate our own well-being from its well-being. And I think this is the kind of understanding that we're reaching toward and that we're moving toward realizing that the meaning of human life, especially at this particular point in history, is really going to have to be acknowledging and living in a way that sees our task in life as the well-being of the whole earth. I think this is the answer to this larger question 
What is the meaning of human life? The meaning of human life is to realize the whole earth is our body and that we have this bodhisattva responsibility to work for its well-being. And if we do that, then I think we can see that the process of healing that will occur will also transform us as much as the planet. I've given you a lot of heavy-duty concepts in a very quick way. I just want to finish with a few lines, if I can find it quickly enough. A few lines by the, um, well, not a Buddhist poet, Rumi, who I thought described this so well, from a poem he wrote called The Worm's Waking. This is how a human being can change. There's a worm that's addicted to eating grape leaves. Suddenly, he wakes up. Call it grace, whatever. Something wakes him. And now he's no longer a worm. He's the entire vineyard. And the orchard, too. The fruit, the trunks. A growing wisdom and joy that doesn't need to devour. He doesn't become the vineyard. He realizes that he's always been the vineyard. And that's our task. We don't need to become part of the earth, but to realize that we've never been apart from it. And I think I've used up my time. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Uh, David and I uh, are teaching a retreat in the upper area now, and it's wonderful to come down, even though normally this time is nap time. <laughs> but, as, but as David said, it's a time to wake up. <laughs> so that uh, sense of the parallels that David was talking about between the individual and the collective predicament in some ways, is a new way of seeing it, but this is also, it's also been known for a long time. And this, this, is, uh, this is from Shantideva from the 8th century, uh, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. This entire world is disturbed by insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. I read that again? (laughs) I could read it the whole time. (laughs) This entire world is disturbed by insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. So it points to the uh, predicament. But I think in a way, uh, David's talk and, and that passage from Shantideva also points towards how we move how we begin and continue acting. And I know we've already started, I think, with James's presentation and really uh, bringing the focus onto action. And later this afternoon, the, I think the ayas will particularly be very, very concrete about specific actions that help us respond to uh, climate issues. And so what I wanted to focus on, and again in a very short time, is how we can approach uh, action 
And I think it's, uh, I think it's very helpful in terms of um, acting to see that something, I think something new is being uh, asked of us. And that is to respond to these crises with a deep connection of inner work and inner inquiry and outer response. And we may be imagining a kind of being, if we want to call out that being the new bodhisattva, that hasn't really been in our world in a very full way. And so what I want to point to is that that vision of uh, training and action and really the importance of connecting the inner and outer aspects. I believe that without inner resources, we won't be able to respond adequately. Without the resources of awareness and kindness and joy and equanimity and wisdom, we'll burn out, we'll get discouraged, we'll succumb to negative emotions. We need these inner practices, I think in part due to the uh, largeness of the uh, problems. And yet if our spirituality doesn't go outward in a way we may be only um, embracing privilege as much of the world burns. And these are, I think, um, challenging imperatives for all of us to look at this. I think it takes a lot of looking into how do I Uh, use my energy, what's important. Do I feel called to that vision? You know, I think also of uh, something that uh, Bill McKibben said in relation to climate change. And I want to read uh, a passage from something he wrote, which I think is very supportive of the notion that we need to help Uh, train and ourselves become these uh, new bodhisattvas, these new beings dedicated to inner awakening and responding to the needs of the world at the same time. He says, if those of us who are trying really hard are still fully enmeshed in the fossil fuel system, as most of us are, how many came by carpool? Good, very good. How many came by bicycle? <laughs> okay. How many walked? Okay. Very good. So you know where I'm going with that one. Okay. Um, if those of us who are trying really hard are still fully enmeshed in the fossil fuel system, it makes even clearer that what needs to change are not individuals, but precisely that system. We simply can't move fast enough one by one to make any real difference in how the atmosphere comes out. Here's the math obviously imprecise. Maybe 10% of the population cares enough to make strenuous efforts to change. Maybe 15% if they do all they can in their homes and offices and so forth. And then, well, nothing much shifts. The trajectory of our climate horror stays about the same. 
But if 10% of the people, once they've changed the light bulbs, work all out to change the system, that's enough. That's more than enough. It would be enough to match the power of the fossil fuel industry, enough to convince our legislatures to put a price on carbon. And talking with James, he said there's been some other studies which show that if only, is it 7.5% of the population is really active and engaged, that becomes a critical mass. And what I'm suggesting is that part of that 7.5% and a very important part of that 7.5% will be what we might call new bodhisattvas. Those who are trained and skilled in the inner work and are also responding outwardly. That we will connect with people from other spiritual traditions, with secular activists, with ordinary people, but that there's something very important uh, to contribute from those who can have that combination of inner and outer training. You know, I mentioned the bodhisattva, so I want to just say a word about the bodhisattva. Traditionally, the bodhisattva is the one who comes to awakening but is dedicated to helping others. Not necessarily in the Asian context in addressing the structural problems of the society. Might be more through kindness, through helping, through the large heart and so forth. And so that's why I talk about a a kind of new bodhisattva. The bodhisattva, we find there's a wonderful expression of the bodhisattva. Let's see, from, let's see where this is. Well, from, many of you know from the Zen tradition, there are lines that say something like, Was it sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are endless, I vow to overcome them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to master it. Did I miss a a line? There's a fourth one there somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and so we get that idea. So what does that that look like in um, in the contemporary world? So I want to say that the training for the contemporary bodhisattva involves, first of all, many of the inner practices that we're very familiar with. The bodhisattva needs to be able to work with the mind and the heart and the body and be able to track when there are difficult thoughts, negative thoughts, can be the one who, when fear arises, is someone who knows fear, who when anger, arri- when anger arises is someone who knows anger and knows what it is, where it comes from, can have empathy, but can also respond. Through our mindfulness practice, through our wisdom training, through our development of the heart in loving kindness, compassion, joy, forgiveness, can know 
how to respond to fear, how, can, how to respond to crisis, can be that person who brings calm to a difficult or dangerous situation. The bodhisattva, through having done the inner work, has the equanimity to stay balanced when others are unbalanced. The bodhisattva is not afraid of suffering and is not afraid of pain because the bodhisattva has had training in how to be with what's difficult. And of course, this is ongoing. I'm not saying after this training, all fear is gone. (laughs) So it's ongoing training. But can you see how this is exactly what's needed for our times? You know, to have people who really have those uh, capacities. The bodhisattva knows how to respond as well. And so there are trainings that the bodhisattva has, we might say, in a whole series of intermediate trainings. The bodhisattva has skillful means and knows about skillful speech, has trained in wise speech, and knows how to speak in difficult situations without making things worse, without being reactive. The bodhisattva is very well trained in knowing how to work with conflict. The bodhisattva's been through several diversity trainings and knows how to be with a range of people and maybe has spent a lot of time in a range of communities. The bodhisattva has trained in, and really not just trained, but had a lot of fun loving the earth more. (laughs) Whole series of ways to be, ways to train, ways to learn, to connect more with the earth on all sorts of levels. through our gardens, through just really knowing the earth better, being immersed in it. Much of the energy to respond comes from cultivating love for the earth. That's, That's where a lot of the energy comes from. We get training in community and community action. We get training in all sorts of other uh, approaches you know, that help us to act skillfully in various, in various areas. And we'll be you know, looking at those later. The bodhisattva, I think, also acts where there's a particular calling and vocation. And I'm reminded of a very beautiful and powerful and simple analysis of what's needed for transformation from Joanna Macy. And she says that the great transformation has three aspects. The first is holding actions to prevent further damage. Very, very crucial. The province of traditional activism, very, very necessary for many of us to act in that way. Maybe at certain times, most of us, all of us sometimes. The second is to analyze our institutions and develop alternative institutions, we would say, that are sustainable. And that's crucial. This isn't just about protest, right? A true transformation 
requires vision, requires uh, other ways of doing things. And many of us are already exploring this in terms of alternative agriculture, economics, medicine, law, you know, education, and so forth. And the third aspect of this great transformation is to shift consciousness, is to be able to help others come to a different understanding, very much following what David was saying. So this may be to train us to have a different relationship to our body if we're yoga teachers or qigong teachers or nurses or doctors. It may be to help people in meditation to see things differently. All three of those are necessary. And what I particularly got out of her understanding is it's not like we all have to do the same thing, but we have to go where we're called. We have to go where the gifts are, where the calling is, where the energy is. And it might be in one of those three areas primarily. But the important thing is to connect all three together. So I might be a yoga teacher teaching a different way of being with the body, but I want to stay connected with those who are helping to prevent further damage. And I might, a certain percentage of my time, be an activist. Maybe most of my time I teach a different relation to the body. And I think there's that calling which we have to have, very much like that very beautiful statement and kind of paradoxical from Howard Thurman, the African-American theologian, who said in response to a young man, this was a man who had been a lifelong activist, uh, started the first interracial church in the San Francisco Bay Area. And a young man asked him, what should I do with my life? You might imagine he would say, well, we really need people at the church, or here's the movement now. And he said, paradoxically, don't ask what the world needs. Rather, ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And so I'll leave us with that and invite us to uh, look for and demand training to connect our inner work and our outer response, because that's what the world needs, and it also makes us come alive. Thank you. (laughs) And we wanted to leave a little bit of time for any questions or responses. We understand there hasn't been always so much time so far during the day. I noticed there was one question in the back, one gentleman there, or comment. I just notice how difficult it is sometimes to speak what we're trying to say and how often um, we have duality in our language and we articulate a relationship with the earth when really we are the earth. Hmm. Thank you for that. Actually, especially difficult for a philosopher like me, yeah? um, which is why I, I wanted to end with that poem, because it's the poets, it's the artists, it's the musicians who do a lot better real articulation of that than somebody like myself. So use language differently. People say, how do we relate to nature? Say, 
It's here. <laughs> I am nature. <laughs> Other observations, reflections, questions? It could be from something earlier in the day that hasn't had uh, time or space yet. Uh, please, Susan. Uh, the name of the Rumi poem, was it The Worm is Waiting? No. Uh, the title I have, and I'm not sure it's his original title, is yeah. The Worm Awakes. The Worm Awaits. Thank right. you so much. You're welcome. In the... Uh, Far back? Yeah. To my left at the back. Thank you for your talks. Um, and uh, one thing that has occurred over the years is that I, I often felt that now I've got it, and if I can just explain it <laughs> to the other people, uh, you know, in a good way, they'll get it and, and uh, go with me, whether it's the women's movement or whatever it is, you know, you get and understand. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, and very often uh, the frustration Mount. So I think in these efforts you have to be uh, resilient and have to be able to take failure again and again and again um, and keep on. Great. Thank you. And remember the 7.5% understanding because we don't need to reach everyone. At a certain point it becomes contagious. So this is a share from something that happened earlier where um, I don't remember who was talking about how we're uh, holding hands um, and it makes us stronger. And um, there's a beautiful song in Spanish called La Cancion Es Urgente. The song is urgent. And one of the things, and I sing, so I love that song. And it says... <laughs> no, it's just, one, just one line. And it says... So, so it's urgent, it's la canción es urgente, es un río creciendo, una, uh, una flecha en el aire, es amor combatiendo. And there's a part that says, um, que si vamos cantando, no podrán detenernos. If we're singing together, they cannot stop us. So. I, I think that is a segue. <laughs> <laughs>